When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast in a week where events have escalated to a nuclear level in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. My name is Jared Watt, hoping you have securely fastened your seatbelt because it looks like some serious turbulence ahead. Three days after Vladimir Putin made world headlines by putting Russian nuclear strike forces on high alert, we woke this morning in Hong Kong to find that millions of people around the world are watching live streaming video of Russian forces firing relentlessly upon Ukraine's largest nuclear reactor. And that's one day after the United Nations General Assembly held an emergency session to vote on a resolution calling for the end of the brutal war against the Ukrainian people. A vote which was of course scrutinised very closely for how China chose to display its allegiance, just weeks after Xi Jinping publicly declared his relationship with Vladimir Putin to have no limits. Are we seeing Beijing beginning to rethink its role in this conflict? You're going to hear from our New York correspondent Mark Magnier about what happened at the UN, what Joe Biden said about China in his State of the Union address, and of course, more on the investigative report that has angered China's foreign ministry for its claims that not only was Xi Jinping warned by Vladimir Putin of the impending invasion, Beijing officials handed over intelligence reports supplied to them from the US, warning of the Russian military buildup. And meanwhile in Europe, two days after reporting to us on the historic change in German foreign policy, we're going to hear from our Brussels correspondent Finbar Birmingham on that speech. Ukrainian leader Vladimir Zelensky addressed the European Parliament and had the translator and many journalists in tears. And now Europe is calling for China to step in to broker peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. And there's been another crucial indication of a change in China's involvement in this conflict. A major Beijing-based development bank has announced it's reviewing all Russia-based lending and activities. There's a lot going on. As ever, by the time you hear this, things may well have changed. My colleagues at the South China Morning Post are working around the clock to file updates, not just in Ukraine, but of the escalating crisis here in Hong Kong. You can find all of those reports and updates at scmp.com. On with the show. Mark Magnier is with our North American Bureau in New York. Mark, you're in some distinguished company this week. You've not just been labelled fake news, you've been labelled pure fake news. Let's start with this story originally published in the New York Times that you expanded upon and, as I say, has now been labelled pure fake news in a smear of China by our Wang Wenbin. It's best summed up as, what did Xi Jinping know about Russia's invasion plans given he had a very long personal meeting with Vladimir Putin at the Olympics? What did you find out? Well, our sources uh, citing a Western uh, intelligence report 
not clear uh, which Western nation, that was then passed around to a number of other allied intelligence countries, basically said that on February 4th, which was the day that the two of them met uh, in Beijing, that high-level Russian officials, it was not confirmed that it was uh, Putin talking to Xi Jinping, although I, I can't believe with those two strong men that they would let anyone under them <laughs> convey anything of that importance. But at any rate, that the news was communicated that there would be, uh, you know, a military operation and uh, that our sources said that the Beijing side did not support or condemn the operation, but asked that it be postponed until after the Olympics, which are very much uh, a key part of Xi Jinping's uh, objective and something that he has uh, championed for many years. So you then saw the closing ceremony was on February 20th. And uh, four days later at dawn, uh, the Russians crossed the border into Ukraine and the invasion started. The uh, Chinese have denied this um, vociferously and accused the U.S. of Diverting attention and blame shaming, which they said is despicable. So that's uh, that's where it stands. And it's quite interesting because we also had reports that the US handed China intelligence reports detailing the military buildup on the Ukrainian border. So they're kind of working both sides of the street about how we kind of knew, but we didn't know. And clearly there's no discussion between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, who's relationship knows no limits, uh, as they as they declared. Yeah, and, and even more in some ways of a slap in the face that uh, U.S. intelligence officials are a bit um, miffed at is that the New York Times reported that the when the U.S. officials showed Beijing the intelligence, um, hoping that they would convince uh, Moscow to back down, that Beijing showed the intelligence directly to uh, Moscow, at which point, uh, in a subsequent briefing out of Moscow, the uh, Russians accused the U.S. of hysteria and um, made one of the spokeswomen made a joke that, uh, oh, I'm sorry I was late to the briefing, um, but I was uh, working on the timing of the exact timing of the invasion, according to the U.S., something like that. So, um, you know, th there's a little bit of uh, bad blood there, I think, uh, having shared that. Mark, this week you've been talking to analysts and sources, and in your latest story published just overnight, you detail how this agreement between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin on the sidelines of the Beijing Olympics is having some serious repercussions for China as what was envisioned, we think, by the Russians as a lightning strike taking over Kiev and Ukraine. It looks like it's becoming a quagmire, and China's sort of being drawn into its sphere. Yeah, this raises a couple of issues. Uh, and again, uh, with the lack of transparency, fair enough, leaders don't tend to broadcast exactly what they're doing. But, you know, there are many people wondering, did in this exchange, this reported exchange between the Chinese and Russian leaders on February 4th, did China have a 
full picture from the Russians of exactly what they were going to do? Or did uh, the Russians pull a bit of a fast one, getting their agreement without indicating that this was as serious as it was, could last as long as it did, and perhaps unknown that the military early on does not seem to be quite as effective as the 24-hour takeover that, that might have been expected. So that's one uh, issue. The other part of this, or a related part, is that China now finds itself uh, suffering collateral damage, if you will. Uh, it is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. It has to show a sensible support for this partnership without limits. Uh, but at the same time, many of the actions that are coming together against Russia will affect them. Xi Jinping, in a very important political year, does not want this kind of diversion, this attention that is also uh, perhaps even worse, expanding into the Chinese people as they worry about 6,000 or 7,000 Chinese that are scrambling to get out of the Ukraine. Uh, this is a year when he was hoping to take his victory lap with the Olympics, when COVID-19 zero tolerance policies are being carried out uh, and Hong Kong is erupted. And of course, uh, the, and the National People's Congress next week and the all-important party Congress in the fall where he is uh, expected to get his third term. So there's a lot going on. Then there's the style issue. Both have certain objectives, which are to try to undermine democracies and divide and conquer, to make the world safe for uh, authoritarians. And uh, you saw in, in a big mutual statement on February 4th um, that China also uh, signed on to Putin's big concern to push NATO back from its borders. Um, but how you get there, China tends to be subtle, tends to take the long view, has a stake in the global order, and uh, has you can differ with their approach, but they have been trying to build the Belt and Road Initiative. They've been trying to use their economic cloud to gradually expand their military footprint. This Russian approach going in pictures all over the world of killing civilians, hitting apartment blocks with missiles. The global outcry, this UN vote is just not uh, what China's about. And so it's, uh, it's I think, been uh, a bit of a backlash. Let me move on to, and as you mentioned, there's some very big events happening in Beijing as of Monday next week, what's known as the two sessions. But there was, of course, another big event that happened in Washington, D.C. this week. Normally, we're focused on these two major events, the State of the Union speech and the two sessions. Both have been blown off the front pages by the events in Ukraine. But can I just get you to just recap for us? There was a lot of attention paid to what Joe Biden had to say about Ukraine, of course, in his speech. But what about his references to China? You know, how did it contrast to the kinds of things we got used to hearing over the past few years with Donald Trump? Well, first of all, I might say that both the State of the Union and NPC are 
somewhat pro forma. <laughs> there's, a, there's sort of a, a, a theater to the whole thing. The State of the Union is, is uh, often a huge laundry list of uh, things that the uh, president wants to do and often never gets around to. Um, but yes, as you say, there was quite a contrast with Trump. If you look back at Trump's State of the Union addresses, you know, surprise, surprise, often a very sharp-elbowed uh, reference to China's theft of U.S. jobs, and for decades, China has taken advantage of the United States, uh, occasionally tempered by a victory lap that he has tamed China with his great phase one trade deal uh, in the in the last uh, State of the Union that he gave, which, of course, uh, was recently characterized by the Peterson Institute for International Economics as a historic failure, the, the phase one agreement. Um, I'd almost go to yeah. say it was that been proven to be a, a very expensive practical joke upon the American taxpayers. But, uh, <laughs> but with but yeah. Joe Biden, how did Joe Biden address so China? Biden only referenced uh, China two times directly, two or three times directly in passing uh, in a one hour speech. Uh, and it was largely in the context of needing to compete with China on infrastructure because he's trying to pass uh, or has just passed one big infrastructure package and wants to pass a second, as well as a little bit of impetus on jobs and the need for investment in, in semiconductors. He had a line uh, uh, trying to sort of rally the American people. I've told Xi Jinping it's never been a good bet to bet against the American people. But there was more about China in the subtext. There was framing about democracy versus authoritarianism, uh, which has been a big theme of his since in and around, but also before the December democracy summit he had. And um, the need for democracies to to uh, meet the needs of their people and the strength of alliances. So indirectly, China was mentioned in that context. But uh, as you know, uh, Biden's um, popularity has falling fairly significantly uh, in in recent months. And so the trick that the speechwriters were trying to thread were spend some time on. Ukraine since it had uh, it had dominated it has been dominating the news, but then try to segue pretty quickly into issues that Americans are worried about the inflation, jobs, trying to get beyond COVID. In many ways, they share uh, some of those concerns with the Chinese people. You know, you're always walking a fine balance there whether we're paying and wasting money with foreign affairs when we have so many problems at home. Mark, I know you've had an extremely busy week, as everyone has. What's on your radar coming up in the next week? Well, I think one of the issues that a lot of people are very interested in, especially our readers, is the nature of the relationship between China and Russia as this unfolds. We've covered some of those issues today, but if the military operations in Ukraine turn into a long slog and the uh, sanctions, the wide array of sanctions uh, over time start to bite, to what extent will China directly or indirectly help out Russia in evading those sanctions? And 
how does it walk a line between helping an ally, but not having its own banks and other operations companies sanctioned as well? I had an interview today with Secretary of State Counselor Derek Chollett directly, and he cautioned that uh, any country with a specific look at China that uh, tries to evade the sanctions will be subject to consequences. He, de- he uh, declined to be specific on that, but uh, it was a clear warning. Um, and so that I think it will be very uh, interesting to watch. And again, it will keep um, it will keep China on the hot seat. And uh, we'll, of course, wait to see what Xi Jinping, who just a couple of months ago advertised the very particular brand of Chinese democracy, uh, how that's going to play out and whether he steps in to help negotiate peace in Ukraine. Mark Magnia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Finbar Birmingham, two days ago, we recorded a podcast and you had to dash out because you had to get to the European Parliament, we've since seen worldwide news of the speech from Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky and how galvanizing uh, and some say historic that was. What did you witness this week at the European Parliament? Yes, the European Parliament was a very emotional place on Tuesday. It was, um, we were told that it was going to be an address from uh, Zelensky, uh, perhaps a recorded message. Um, in the in the room, we had von der Leyen, the Commission President, Borrell, the High Representative for Foreign Affairs, Charles Michel, President of the European Council, the Ukrainian Ambassador to the EU. I was in the press galley with um, a bunch of journalists, and it soon became clear that Zelensky was giving a live address. He was there in his sort of green military khaki T-shirt that has become synonymous with his smartphone-recorded addresses from the streets of Kiev. You know, and he, he gave an address in Ukrainian in, during which he, he outlined the um, the onslaught that was ongoing in Kharkiv that morning. Rockets had torn up Freedom Square. You know, at that point, the translator who was who was relaying his message from Ukrainian into English broke into tears. Uh, it was a really emotional moment. Journalists around me were crying. There weren't too many dry eyes. Um, his message was, we're the same as you were Europeans. Let us in. Don't leave us here. Um, there are people dying for, for the values that people of Europe hold. And after this, um, you know, the European Parliament adopted a resolution which accepts uh, Ukraine's request to become a candidate for EU membership. And I, I really think it's important to nip something in the bud. Europe, the European Union is not extending can, uh, membership to, to Ukraine. This is years and years off if it ever happens. And there was a lot of disinformation after this on social media saying that the EU has allowed Ukraine to become a member. I mean, that's nonsense. There are other countries in the queue that have been there for for many years. A lot of the Balkan nations, Albania, Macedonia, Serbia, a lot of these countries have been trying to get into the EU for, for much longer. I don't think that they're going to expedite Ukraine. I don't think it meets many of the strict criteria, but nonetheless, it was a poignant moment. And, you know, it's, it really was a um, one of those things that will never leave me, uh, you know, the fact that this guy was under siege and he was, he was addressing us live. Um, the emotion in the room was palpable. This came just days after his address to the European Council and you had detailed to us 
what happened after that in our previous podcast where it essentially had inspired this tectonic change in Germany's foreign policy that has huge implications for China. Tell us now, what are your sources telling you now about this changed paradigm, this resolve from the EU and how that affects the relationship with China? You know, I, I did say earlier in the week we're not in Kansas anymore, and it certainly has that feel to it. Um, researchers, academics, diplomats, officials that I've been having coffees and conversations on the phone with this week are all reeling. The pace of sanctioning has slowed up this week. We've we've seen some banks get kicked off the SWIFT network, which was in the pipeline for a little while. You know, I think that they're now in a period of um, allowing those to bite for a while and see how quickly they can get munitions and arms to the Ukrainians. But it does certainly feel like the paradigm has shifted. Now, for China, this is important because it's shown that the European Union can move quickly. And my sense from conversations with a lot of diplomats, in particular from member states, diplomats are frustrated by China's refusal to condemn, condemn Russia from the foreign ministry and other state media and stuff, you know, the, the, the parroting of Russian talking points. There is a desire from the European Union, however, first and foremost, to work with China to get this crisis resolved. The EU wants China to help broker a ceasefire with Russia, to get Russia to stop the war. And this is paramount in their ambition, right? They want to get this war stopped and that goes above anything else that they've told me about um, about China. We've seen reports from our own Mark uh, Magne in, in Washington. Other media have, have had similar reports that China knew about the Russian invasion and asked them to hold it off until after the Beijing Olympics. The EU has not raised this with their Chinese counterparts because, again, they don't want to isolate or alienate China at a time in which they're trying to get them on side to try and negotiate with Russia on a ceasefire for this war. So you have two layers, I suppose, one in which um, people are wondering, how much did China know? That's a common point, talking point on the terraces of the Brussels cafes. How how much did China know and when? Why isn't China offering any criticism? Does that mean that they, by not criticizing, that they support what Russia is doing? And on the other hand, you have officials who are saying, we need China's help on this, so we don't want to rock the boat with Beijing too much. So there's a bit of a dichotomy there. It's really interesting. It's changing quickly. The situation, as as you know, it's, it feels like um, anything we say could be out of date in in minutes. I mean, this time last week was the first day of the invasion. I'm talking to you on Thursday, and the world certainly seems like it's spinning on on a different axis than it did a week ago. It's interesting you mention that. The EU is asking for China to broker a ceasefire. That has been, I would say, the key part of all the statements we heard. We've heard from China's foreign minister, from its foreign ministry spokespeople, that China wants a negotiated settlement. And with the beginning of the two sessions next week in Beijing, it would kind of seem that, you know, cometh the man, cometh the hour. Is this the moment for Xi Jinping to step forward as the great statesman as opposed to the great helmsman, and try and broker this, you know, negotiated peace. Yeah, I, do, I mean, I couldn't tell you much about the two sessions this year. I've been distracted, obviously, with what's going on here. I would say that while you have that official line from the EU among member states, there's scepticism as to whether China uh, wants uh, to help or be can help. 
you know, Russia seems fairly uh, headstrong. <laughs> Is that the understatement of the, of the century? You know, it, uh, it doesn't seem like Putin's in a position where anybody can talk sense into him at the moment. And whether or not China would do that is is the the power to do that who knows um we we don't know i mean i can just tell you what people are saying here and there are there is skepticism there's not a lot of trust in in china in in brussels um particularly among some of the more hawkish member states and i'm not talking about lithuania i'm talking about western europeans this time you know i had a coffee with somebody yesterday who said look we have zero expectation of beijing because our trust has already been evaporated over the course of the pandemic. People pick up on the messaging that China put out on things like mass diplomacy, things like vaccine diplomacy, things like during the the ravages of the pandemic here in Europe, the state media trumpeting the superiority of an authoritarian or autocratic system over the over the Western democratic system. People haven't forgotten that. And so now at a moment when China is sort of positioning itself as a, as a neutral power and, and perhaps the honest broker in this, there is scepticism. We had a conversations with the EU's disinformation team. They tell us that rather than spread fake news, uh, they notice an increased volume in information manipulation, which is sort of different, um, coming out of official Chinese media channels and social media channels, which was quite similar to the stuff that was coming out during the pandemic, the early stages of the pandemic. Again, about the superiority of autocratic systems versus Western democracies. So, you know, all of this is amounting to a little bit of an atmosphere of distrust. Generally, I think if, if China is able to negotiate a ceasefire, then people would be pretty pleased with that. But I, I'm just sort of managing the, or relating the managed expectations I've encountered when I've raised this point with people here in, in Europe. Now I'm talking to you quite late on a Thursday night here in Hong Kong. Right now, Twitter is awash with hot takes and responses to the latest vote at the United Nations and China's abstention. What are your EU sources saying about that? What's going on behind the scenes? I think that they're pleased that China abstained. Uh, I think it's the, the, what they consider to be the least China could do. This was the target of lobbying last week, you know, in the early stages of the invasion. It was clear that they would be targeting China at the Security Council for an abstention. I don't think anybody realistic expected China to um, come out with a vote condemning Russia. The EU has been lobbying in New York at the UN and in Beijing. The meetings have been fairly formulaic. I think China has been parroting the same talking points that they've released to the public. It's been described to me as significant that China abstained on this. I mean, there was a worry, I suppose, that China would offer backing to Russia in this forum. Fimba, what else is across your radar right now? I've just been uh, fighting a breaking news story about the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. This is the Chinese-backed uh, development bank launched in 2016 as a rival, seen as a rival to the World Bank. China's a 30% stakeholder in this. It's based in Beijing. The chairman is, is Chinese and as are many of the secretariat. It's just announced that it would uh, it would pause all support, all activities for Russia and Belarus. Significant, this one, I think, because it's the first China-backed institution to, to, um, to do such a thing. We should not consider, sort of go overboard with this because whereas it is China-backed and whereas it is Beijing headquartered, it's also a multilateral organization with non, many non-Chinese members. Um, so it's not the same as a Chinese bank 
or you know, a wholly Chinese-owned institution doing this. It's an internationally owned in which China has a 30% stake. Russia has a almost 6% stake. So Russia is a member. The AGM for this organization, I just was, was raking through their press releases, is supposed to be held in Moscow in October. I don't think that will be going ahead if, if things are still the way they are. So, so that was interesting. The um, Ukrainian delegation to the World Trade Organization in Geneva um, sent a letter calling all members to stop extending trade benefits uh, under the WTO to Russia. Um, Ukraine said it would be suspending its own um, recognition of, of Russia as a most favoured nation in WTO parlance. I just got off the phone to a spokesperson for the EU's Department of Trade who said that they're considering doing the same on Monday. I don't know exactly how significant that is. I haven't had time to digest it or to speak to anybody about it in depth. I suppose if there's very little, if there are, aren't so many goods flowing between Europe and Russia at this time because of various levels of sanctions and so on, it may be more symbolic than anything. But again, if it happens, it's another uh, part of this diplomatic economic pylon that's really, really tearing into into Russia and the Russian economy. And we'll no doubt be reading more of your analysis and more of your updates as they come to hand. Feeling like they come to hand almost every hour now. Finbar Birmingham in Brussels, thank you very much. Thanks, Jared. That's all for this week. You'll be reading all the latest updates on scmp.com across the weekend. Don't forget to follow the SEMP Political Economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Listening Post newsletter, which comes out each Friday with reviews of podcasts you might not have heard yet, some choice gems from the SEMP archive, and some interesting tidbits of what's to come. My name is Jared Watt. As they say in Ukraine, Budmo. As we say in Hong Kong, stay positive, test negative, keep your distance, but stay in touch. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.